So, you know what, I'll start recording. Welcome, everybody, to Chapter 9. So, uh, as per request, we'll just briefly run through the end of Chapter 8 um, because of the recording getting cut off. My sincere apologies about that. The recording device died, and I didn't see your, your comments in the chat, Victor, um, during the last class. So, let's briefly run through the end of Chapter 8, and, uh, and then we could continue with Chapter 9. So remember, uh, is around, you know, around the uh, Yud, maybe. That, yeah, perfect. Uh, okay, so let's look from there. Chapter eight, Pasuk Yud makes sense. Okay, um, so let's see. So let's see the beginning of that section. Yes, is actually Pasuk ten. So it's perfect. So now we're going to just discuss some injustices. <laughs> he would see scoundrels coming from this holy site being brought to burial while such as had acted righteously were forgotten in the city. And here is another frustration. So he's saying even after death, there is injustices that are done, done to us, right? The burial process is not just. You have evil people being buried in a certain way, that's with respect, while Sadiqim might not be respected after the death. The fact that the sentence imposed for evil deeds is not exactly, uh, is not executed swiftly, um, which is why men are emboldened to do evil. And here's another thing, the fact that when people do evil deeds, they don't get zapped right away. Instead, they're able to, to have this illusion that, you know, there is no justice in the world because they didn't see any consequences to their evil actions. So that's another evil uh, that, that he sees. In fact, that a sinner may do evil a hundred times and his punishment still be delayed. For although I am aware that it be well with those who revere God since they revere him, and it will not be well with the scoundrel and he will not live long because he does not revere God. So he's almost cynically, you know, uh, quoting here a popular, uh, a popular proverb of his time that evil people will have, you know, their just desserts. He says, even though I know that's true, so this is the ultimate pasuk um, that really could capture the idea of theodicy, that there is no justice for the shayim or sadikim, whereas you have sadik veralo and rasha vetovlo. You could have a sadik who could have bad things happen to him and a rasha who will have good things happen to him. And he says, that's also havil. The word Havel, as he uses it, and we're going to see that again in chapter 9, or about to read, this word Havel really is most pointed when he's discussing this idea of injustice and theodicy. And, uh, you know, the lack of um, people getting what they deserve, whether that be for the good or for the bad. And now he's explaining to us exactly why it is that he has taken this view of pleasure this whole time. 
says, I therefore praised enjoyment. For the only good a man can have under the sun is to eat and drink and enjoy himself. That much can accompany him in exchange for his wealth through the days of life that God has granted him under the sun. So the only thing that you can really be sure of is enjoyment in this moment. Because you know that the future is uncertain and the future is not based on my notions of justice. The most logical thing to do is to fully immerse yourself in this moment. And how do you do that? By engaging in pleasure. It makes all the sense in the world. And of course, you know, my, my common criticisms against that is that he didn't, you know, understand the pleasures of non-physical things, you know, like belonging to a group larger than yourself, a family, a community, religion, relationship with God. These are, these are pleasurable, but they're not just strict eating, drinking, sex. You know, it's, that doesn't have to be as carnal as that. So that's my personal response. For I have set my mind to learn wisdom and to observe the business that goes on in the world, even to the extent of going without sleep. Diana, he said, I, I toiled over this. I lost sleep trying to understand what exactly is going on in the world. And he's going to expound. I've observed that all, all that God brings to pass, in, indeed, men cannot guess the events that occur under the sun. For man tries strenuously but fails to guess them. He says, I tried. And you know who the, the quintessential hacham in the pasuk is? Kohelet himself. He says, I myself tried. That's how I know any hacham would not be able to do this. No matter how hard you try, you won't be able to know the future. You won't be able to know the purpose of all of this. You know, you don't know the meaning of all this. It seems to him, to quote Shakespeare, like a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. And even if the sage should think to discover them, he would not be able to guess them. Right? So that's the shame, is that all he could see in this uh, world as he perceives it is just complete meaninglessness folly in the fact that he doesn't know the future that he can't read the mind of god and to him that's just extremely uh perplexing and frustrating more than anything so now let's see chapter nine um so now this chapter is going to continue with this idea of uh you know this this previous chapter trying to understand and wrap his head around god's ways so let's just jump right in. Any, any questions up until now? No, I'm okay. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. For all this I noted, and I ascertained all this, that the actions of even the righteous and the wise are determined by God. Even love, even hate. Man knows none of these in advance. So just a couple of points here. He doesn't seem to be saying that God has this, this predetermination of our actions. It's more of a general overall control of the limits of what we can do, but not a granular control of everything that we are doing. It's just the, the potentials of what we can do are limited. And that's what it really seems to be. Um, and it's in God's hands in that way. 
when he says even love, even hate, I think really these are, according to Michael Fox, these are God's emotions. They're not humans' emotions. So what that means is there's this unjust allocation of fate. And we just, we can't understand who God's going to show his love to and who God is going to show his hate to. And in a way, this is actually pretty comforting because when you have evil done to you, you don't want to just blame yourself. You don't want to just say, oh, you know, I must have been deserving of this. And that's what we hear from some members of the right side of the aisle a little bit too often is that the just world fallacy that we live in a world where people, you know, who suffer, oh, they deserved it. It must be God's will. That's not actually the Jewish response. And Kohelet is going even a step further and saying, yeah, we, we don't know. It's all, it's all uh, just willy-nilly the way that things happen. Of course, the Jewish response is that evil things happen so you could respond to them, not to read God's mind at all. But, you know, I think that's kind of why Kohelet is coming to these conclusions is because he can't read God's mind. Let me put you on pause for a second. Yeah, because because sure. I mean it. It sounds like he he he's building up to uh, he's building up to a point where, where someone has to determine what their personal philosophy is. Yes, that's what I think. That's exactly right. That his philosophy is because you don't know God's ways and God's ways don't seem to conform to what I would expect for justice. Therefore, just engage in pleasure, but. I think that the philosophy we, you and I can take here is that we don't need to just respond that way. We can say, let me try to impose the justice that I want to see. Like Gandhi said, you know, uh, be the change you wish to see in the world. You be that. Something bothers you, go fix it. You, you have something that's, that's going on in your life that's really getting to you. Go, you know, start an organization, start a group. You know, uh, nobody, could, nobody could speak for God. Nobody could explain the... the divine justice of it well i don't know i think i think it's arguing for both i mean some people will take the philosophy of trying to uh trying to fix the problems and some people will take the philosophy of uh let me just go and have some fun yeah i don't think he i don't think he mentions go fix it he doesn't he doesn't think it seems like he doesn't even believe in the capacity of human beings to change the general way that the world is there's Mm. no capacity for progress in his view as we've seen in previous chapters there's no such thing. And therefore, the only thing that you can do is engage in the pleasure. Uh-huh. Because no matter what you, you, you're hitting up against, like he says in this pasuk, that God set the limit for everything that you could possibly do. So you can't change the way of the world. Hmm. Yeah. You hear me that? I see I'm getting a little bit cut off. Yeah. No, okay, you. great. Awesome. No, it's any, kind of- any other questions? It's kind of defeating in a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is, it is certainly a, a defeatist attitude that we don't need to take. Like we've mentioned in previous classes, time in the Jewish view, the big Hidush is that time is cyclical. Time is not, sorry, time is not cyclical. Time is linear. There is such a thing as progress. And because that's the case, we can understand, okay, you know, there's, it doesn't have to be, all a defeatist attitude we can look at the world and say there is a potential for progress just look at the standard of living today penicillin look at penicillin how could you say humans can't do anything if we invented something like penicillin to me you're right people are going to die but the quality of living 
I think, is much better. We live in a very peaceful time, thank God, relative to so many other times. You know, there's so much to be grateful for. And we're making all kinds of strides in different fields like medicine and technology. And I don't think he, uh, he really saw the full picture here, Kohelet. I mean, you can't really blame him. He wasn't living in our time, but we have the luxury of looking back, you know, 2020 vision in hindsight. Right, so let's see. None for the same fate is in store for all, for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and the pure, and for the impure, for him who sacrifices and for him who does not, for him who is pleasing and for him who is displeasing, and for him who swears and for him who shuns oaths. Right, so he's saying everybody gets the same fate. It doesn't matter who you are, right? And and it seems, by the way, that this uh, this word hakol could probably be read as hevel, kashilakol. Right, so you know it might be a a, a miss uh, a mistake by the sofer, but either way, it's all senseless. Everything here is senselessness because everything people are seeing is senseless. That we don't see. A difference in the in the uh, outcome of people's lives depending on the type of lives that they led, and he really does a lot of emphasis on that by repeating and repeating these different uh, types of people. That is the sad thing about all that goes on under the sun, that the same fate is in store for all. Not only that, but men's hearts are full of sadness and their minds of madness while they live and then to the dead. All right, so how sad is that? He's saying, not only are we all going to die, but before we die, we're just sad because we're, and we're going mad. We don't know what's going to be. And then we die. It's a very, uh, you know downbeat view of human existence. Um, when he says you're full of sadness, he's basically just saying injustice is extremely demoralizing. It's a very, it's a, it's a question of justice. You know, there's when you're not getting your just desserts, he's disheartened because, you know, we live this fleeting lifetime and then we join the dead. And even that we can't find solace even in life because you don't get justice in the lifetime that you live. So now, uh, any any questions up until now? Yeah, I have a question. Please. Um, so I understand that we all have the same fate, but based on our actions in this life, doesn't that determine where we will be in the afterlife? So, so Kohelet does not believe in, a, in an afterlife. Kohelet, he's going to explain. Actually, it's a great question because he's going to talk about Sheol, um, the underworld, in, uh, in a few Pesukim. So that will answer your question as to what he believes happens after you die. But great question. Okay, thank you. No problem, of course. So now we're going to transition into life's superiority to death. So despite all the stuff that we're saying, life, it seems, is still superior to death. So let's see what he says. For he who is reckoned among the living has something to look forward to. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Or it's better to at least be alive than to be dead. 
at least in life, there's something to it because we're going to see what he thinks of what death involves. Since the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more recompense for even the memory of them has died. So saying maybe if there would have been some kind of memory of the dead, then it would be okay to be dead. But even that, then people forget about us when we die. And uh, this is in, in stark contrast to a Pasuk in Mishleh, which reads, the memory of the righteous is for a blessing, but the name of the wicked rots. Shem But Kohelet is so cynical, he won't even agree with that. He thinks, no, no matter what, you'll, you'll ultimately be forgotten, no matter how great you were, no matter how evil you were. So now let's see. Now this is really, it's going to be very poetic. I, I really love uh, these, this Pasuk and the next one's coming up. Their loves, their hates, their jealousies have long since perished. And they have no more share till the end of time and all that goes on under the sun. He's saying, you know what? It might not be so pleasant to be alive. It might not be the best. You have love, you have hate, you have jealousy, you have ups and downs. But you know what? They're my ups and downs. They're our ups and downs, the things that we experience. So these are the things we most intensely care about, even though they're not all, you know, peaches and cream. There are things that meant a lot to us while we were here, while we were, were alive. And then they never more have a portion. They just completely dissolve. It, it's, it's an absurdity to our existence. We spend so many waking hours, you know, thinking about and working towards our goals and worrying and loving and living and crying and hating and all these different things. And then it all, poof, it disappears just like that and it's and it's a crazy thing because it just kind of makes our lives look like one giant absurdity and that's that's his view you know and uh, my response of course had this great conversation with my friend last night is why do you have to take that as a negative thing the the word nirvana actually but the buddhists say nirvana right nirvana literally means the breath out it means few so the way that I've heard that explained is that nirvana is when you realize, okay, nothing matters absolutely because you're temporary, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter in the now because it's almost like, wow, what a load off. Oh, it doesn't matter. I was worrying all this time about all that stuff. Oh, what, a, what a relief. That's the idea of nirvana. When you're so engrossed in the moment, you realize, okay, this moment is what's important. And it doesn't have to be about pleasure. It could be physical pleasure. It could be about other meaningful things. It could be about spending this moment with God. So that's my opinion of really the best response to this view is that it's up to us to be mindful. It's up to us to make that meaning in the moment so that it doesn't, you know, fill up with this void of meaninglessness. Now this next, uh, section is going to be really probably some of my favorite, favorite Pesukim in the whole Sefer. Um, and it's going to talk about life's pleasures. And there's, there's just a beauty and the simplicity of the way that Kohelet describes these pleasures. And uh, I want to hear your guys' thoughts. So first of all, do you guys have any questions up until now? Any comments? Yeah, 
Great. Okay. So let's let's uh, dig right into these awesome pesukim. Lech echol besimcha lachmecha ushte belevtov yenecha ki chevar atzai lohimet maasecha. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you guys could correct me. This is the pasuk that we say at the end of Yom Kippur, right? Go eat your bread in gladness and drink your wine in joy, for your action was long ago approved by God. So, what do you think he means by that? What does that mean? That your action was approved by God. It seems to me that this is the idea. Of this is God's gift. God's gift to you is pleasure. To those who are fortunate, if you're fortunate enough, if you're lucky enough, if you had the serendipity in your life to be able to engage in pleasure, then you know what? Do it because that's what God wanted in a way. So go and do it. Go engage in that pleasure. Because in a way, that's that's all there is, and that's what's divinely ordained. Just in the simple fact that that's what's available to you. Does anybody remember if they went to Flatbush or something, where that pasuk kind of what it means in the rabbinic view? I think it means you should always be tahor in terms of your teshuvah process. You should always make sure that you do tahanunim every day and that your soul is clean and that your conscience is clean because you never know when you're going to die. So you should make sure you're always doing teshuvah and always repenting because you don't know when your last time is going to be. But it doesn't seem that that's pshat. That seems to be a midrashic approach. In line with Kohelet's pshat here, it seems to be more to do with physical pleasures. Always wear clean, nice clothing. And your head never lack ointment. Always be moisturized. Always be comfortable. Don't put yourself out on a limb to be, you know, in too much physical pain. Now, this a is twist. a real question. Yeah. I say, what a twist between those two interpretations. Oh, the most opposite, right? And yeah. that's the funny thing is that the Hachamim are constantly doing that throughout the book. Everything Kohelet says, they say, oh, it's talking about Torah. It's like, come on. I don't want to, obviously, I don't want to put down what the Hachamim are saying. I believe that there's a, a purpose to that. But I don't think it's the Peshat, you know? And I mm-hmm. think that, there, of course, we want to take what the Hachamim are saying to heart. But we also want to know what Kohelet means and how what we think of that. So now look at this Pasuk. Enjoy happiness with a woman you love all the fleeting days of your life that have been granted to you under the sun. Just enjoy a simple life with your wife. All your fleeting days, for that alone is what you can get out of life and out of the means you acquire under the sun. So remember a couple of uh, chapters ago, we mentioned how he said women are like, you know, uh, entrapments and they're gonna, they're like snares. And he said he never found a good woman and women are more bitter than death. Here he kind of uh, backtracks on that. And he says, you know, it's really not good for a man to be alone. Quote, so even though he said that, what he said earlier, he doesn't seem to think that it's good for man to be alone. And if you could find a good female companion, seems like that's probably the best way to go. Um, and one more point. 
uh, here the Hachamim say, you know, the Hachamim of the Midrash also echoed his negative comments about women earlier on, but now they too retract a little bit of what they were saying. And they say in, in Masechet Yevamot, whoever is without a wife lives without good, without help, without happiness, without blessing, and without atonement. Be Yoshua Levi adds, and without life and without peace. So there's so much that you lose out on if you don't have a, a, a wife or a, a spouse, a companion in life. Um, and, and Kohelet knows that. And he's saying, you want just let it live a simple life. Simplify, enjoy the physical pleasures that you have available to you. Don't work too hard. And do moderate amounts of work. We'll see that soon. Whatever it is in your power to do, do with all your might. So Bella, this is answering your question. For there is no action, no reasoning, no learning, no wisdom in Sheol where you are going, in the underworld, in that eternal resting place in the ground. So what is he saying here? As opposed to Amal, which is hard work and toil, which he doesn't like. He says, instead of toil, do whatever is just moderate work. And do it within your strength. Don't do it out of toil. He says there's no action, no reasoning, no learning, no wisdom in Sheol where you are going. In the ancient Hebrew view, Bella, this is answering your question. The ancient Hebrew view in Yaakov Avinu says the same thing in Bereshit. Sheol is the underworld. Like the Greek Hades, it was like a dreary realm of darkness. Inertia and an eternal sleep. And they didn't, you know, the idea of Tehayat Hamitim and Olam Haba didn't exist. So that was really what they believed at the time. So I think these are really beautiful Pesukim because these are things to take, take uh, into uh, account when you're living. Try to simplify things. Don't toil too hard. If you're not going to have time to really enjoy yourself or live in the moment because you're just constantly have all these crazy obligations. You know, I don't, I don't know that that's worth it. And I think, uh, I think there's a wisdom to this in a lot of ways. Just simple, lead a simple life. Do something you enjoy. Make a, a moderate amount of money with a moderate, a moderate amount of work. Find somebody you can love and live with. And just do that, you know. Now the next, any questions or any comments? Okay, cool. Um, so this came before Tehiyah Hamitim. So before anybody, you know, in, in, a, in the Jewish realm came up with the idea of Tehayat HaMetim. So it appears in Daniel, which is the only really uh, place that we see the concept of Tehayat HaMetim in the Tanakh. Daniel, Daniel is after this book, it seems. It was written after this book. So the concept of Tehayat HaMetim was not in the purview of, um, you know, Kohelet. Okay, so how could righteous people like apply this to their philosophy? Because I feel like they believe that they have to like learn all day and be the best people they could be and connect with God. Yeah, so that's I, I'm glad you asked that question. So I think that's exactly the point is that maybe that's not the only thing for righteous people to do. Maybe righteous people don't have to constantly be worried about the future. And maybe they could be more engaged in the now, which is leading a simple life, doing moderate work, honest work, um, doing things that are meaningful. And I agree, yeah, finding God, bring God into the moment, but stop only investing in the future constantly. If you're only investing in the future, 
then what do you really have? You know, if I'm working hard at a job that I hate so that my kids could go to school and then they learn a profession that they hate so that their kids could go to school, it kind of is like, okay, then who's actually doing something that they enjoy? You know, so my response is that righteous people are not just people who learn all day. I think righteous people learn when it's correct to learn. You know, there's a time for everything, like he says in chapter three, learn part of the day, work part of the day, spend time with your kids, with your family, enjoy yourself, have a good meal, treat yourself nicely, wear good clothing, go to the spa once in a while. I don't think anything's wrong with that, you know? Yeah, okay. Like a, a balanced lifestyle, um, exercise. I think, in my humble opinion, I think it's wrong to be in Kolel all day. I think it's wrong to, you know, not take care of your, your, your physical body, not take care of your family. If you're literally in Kolel all day long and you don't make time for family, I think that's wrong. But I'm not judging any person. I'm just saying what I would say for myself. You know? Yeah, I see. Great. Okay. So now, Pasuk Yod Aleph. Um, let's see. Perfect. Okay. So now we're going to be talking talk about time and contingency. The next couple of Pasukim. Shavti vidaot ahata shemesh kilola kalim hameros velola giborim amehama vigam lola hakamim lechem vigam lola nivonim osher vigam lola yodim hen ki et vafega. I have further observed under the sun that the race is not won by the swift, nor the battle by the valiant, nor is bread won by the wise, nor wealth by the intelligent, nor favor by the learned, for the time of mischance comes to all. What he's saying here is not, it doesn't seem to be about death in particular. It means, you know, just because you're the stronger one doesn't mean you're going to necessarily win in battle. Nobody could control the outcome of their lives, of anything. You know, the Yankees could be the best team in the league, which they're not this year. But if they were, they wouldn't win every game. And they probably wouldn't necessarily win in the playoffs. You know, that's the thing, is that life doesn't work that way. We can't control outcomes. And actually, this is a big thing that I learned for myself through years of working on myself psychologically, is trying to realize there are certain things that are just not under my control. You know, I remember even being as a kid, I, I told my teacher in like grade school, in like third grade or something, I said, yeah, I want to be smart so I could make a lot of money. And she said, well, listen, you know, it doesn't always work that way. The smart people don't always make the most money. I said, what? I said, what does that mean? I thought smart people make the most money. She said, no, you, people just have connections. They get lucky, you know, random factors. And I, I remember that really had a big impact on me. And you know, I think that's something to take into account about the world is that there's so much that's not under our control. And when you, when you realize that, when you take that to heart, stop trying to control those things you cannot control, in my opinion, your life will be so much better. You know, we always quote that serenity prayer every class, God grant me the, the wisdom to, uh, to accept the things I cannot change, to, to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. There's nothing more important than that. If you're constantly hitting up against things that are not under your control, you're going to be miserable. So isolate those things that you can control and do them well. And there might just be a few more things that you're not thinking of. So take your efforts away from those things that you can't control, away from that thought looping, away from those worries, 
away from the sadness or whatever you're experiencing from those things that you want but cannot have and channel them towards the things you can do to improve your life. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Kigam, so let's see if there's anything more I wanted to say about that. So there's a, there's a fundamental inequity here that he's saying, the lack of a dependable connection between efforts and results, which he mentioned earlier, or between what one deserves and what one gets. This inequity is what Kohelet throughout calls Hevel. This is the epitome of Hevel. And it's the most pointed form, like we said in the, in the beginning of the chapter, Hevel is when people don't get what they deserve. And you know what? Just accept. You're not always going to get what you deserve. Can't control outcomes. But you can do your best to try to secure whatever you can. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, just accept the way things are at a certain point. It's you know, having a humble attitude. It's a very humble attitude. And it's a very Zen attitude, in my opinion. It's a way of, of understanding, you know, let me be present with what is. Let me stop trying to change everything. And let me focus my efforts on what I can do. You know, it's extremely humble to, to just accept the world the way it is. But I'm, I'm not trying to take away your initiative. But I think once you accept and love the way the world is, you can start noticing, you know, the, the places where you can impact the world. And you start acting out of love rather than out of frustration. If that makes sense. You know, that's one thing I, I that the, the way, my way of, of resolving that Zen Buddhist mindset of loving and accepting the world and the Jewish view of changing the world is that you can change the world through love. You don't have to change the world through anger and, and, you know, frustration constant. I mean, sometimes it's necessary to get angry about things, but for the most part, we can do a lot more things with a lot more peace in our hearts and in our minds, in my humble opinion. So let's see Pasuk 12. And a man cannot even know his time. As fishes are enmeshed in a fatal net, and as birds are trapped in a snare, so men are caught at the time of calamity when it comes upon them without warning. Right? We have these things that happen to us that kind of just grab us. We had no way of seeing them coming. We're like these dumb birds. Birds are like the quintessential ignorant creatures. And we're, we're, we as humans are almost like that in some ways. We're like at the end of the fish hook, he sees us as. We don't know what's going to happen. And this is just emphasizing those things we cannot control. And my response again is, okay, accept those things. Accept that things are going to happen that you cannot control. And that you never saw coming. But once you accept those Put yourself back together again and go out and do those things that you can do and strengthen yourself and, and, you know, reestablish your connection with God and with your, with whoever is your, your support system. I love that idea of find your refuge. You know, like there's such a beautiful meditation that I found in one of these books that I read. Think about those things that catch you when you fall. It could be an idea. It could be a person. It could be a book. It could be a memory, a TV show. Anything that inspires you, that, that helps you fight on and keep going when things get tough, meditate on those. Bring those to mind. Make a happy place for yourself in your mind and meditate on that. Come back to that in, a, in the middle of a very tough day. Take 15 minutes to close your eyes because you'll be a better person for it. You'll suffer a lot less. 
so now we're going to see any questions and comments. Cool. So now we're going to see um, from uh, here till the end of the chapter and even into the next chapter, we're going to just discuss uh, the concept again that we're so familiar with of wisdom and folly. This thing too I observed under the sun about wisdom and it affected me profoundly. So what is he seeing now about wisdom? There was a little city with a few men in it and to it came a great king who invested it and built mighty siege works um, against it. So there's a small town, a small city that's being besieged. Present in the city was a poor wise man who might have saved it with his wisdom, but nobody thought of that poor man. According to Michael Fox, a better interpretation of this pasuk really is, no, not might have, in fact, he did. Look, umilatu he did. He saved the city with his wisdom. But you know something? Nobody listened. Nobody actually um, gave a damn afterwards. Sorry, people, they did listen after they took his advice and they saved the city. Nobody remembered who he was. He kind of fell out of uh, their, their memory because he was a nobody. So even though he had this great advice and saved everybody, he was not remembered. His deed was remembered, but his name was lost, in other words. So now let's So I observed wisdom is better than valor, but a poor man's wisdom is scorned and his words are not heeded. So this saying really does, does not restate, like the, the, the first half of it is explaining how good chokhmah is, right? Like the guy saved the city. But the second half here is not is actually going to have to do with the next couple of pesukim. So let's see what they're going to be talking about. So why is he saying that? Words spoken softly by wise men are heeded sooner than those shouted by a lord in folly or among foolish people, right? And you know the wisdom literature in Egypt even. Um, was was known to emphasize the importance of being reserved and quiet in your speech. And Albert Mizrahi, I know you can uh, you can testify to this that one of the biggest uh, lessons that I need to learn is is this is you know just be more zen in the way that I speak. Maybe talk a little bit less. You know, I think that's a beautiful lesson for me to learn. Um, you know, just measure my words more and to be a person that is. Uh, you know, more, more Zen and, and more mindful of the way that I speak. And I think that can make my words carry more value and, you know, speak more carefully, more fluently speak when you know you have a solution says one, one of these uh, Egyptian uh, Egyptian proverbs, you know, so there's a beauty to this. And however, David Hakam has always said that. Wisdom is more valuable than weapons of war, but a single error destroys much of value. So this is almost chiastic. It's the same way that a single error destroys much of value. That's the same thing as a poor man's wisdom is scorned and his words are not heeded. 
you, you have to make sure that when you speak, you speak carefully and that your, your words are valued. The shame is that wise words are not always heated and they don't always produce the proper result. You're not always going to be listened to, even though you might have the most sage advice. So really, that was a, a pretty quick job that we did of that chapter. Uh, I want to hear if you guys have any, any questions or comments. Yes, Michael, I, just something you glossed over very quickly. Please. Um, and you said a poor man's words um, are not heated or, or something to that effect. Um, I just thought it was an interesting choice of word to describe the person as poor and not, you know, unintelligent or hot-headed or, you know, some other adjective. That's the thing. He, he's a hacham, chokmah. He has chokmah, but he's a hazid case in, in the sense that he is not a person of uh, stature in the community, it seems. Understood. Yeah. So that's, that's something, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shame because we don't value everyone's opinions. We kind of look to the guy with the most money. My question often is, why does the guy with the most money necessarily determine the way that things should go? Shouldn't it be the guy with the most intelligence? And that they're not always the same person. And of course, you know, money talks that's just one of the ways of the world and we kind of have to navigate that and, and yeah, so uh, society has come a long way in terms of medicine and technology but in a lot of ways it's uh stayed the same over the last uh, couple thousand years that's right things some things really never do change i think kohelet was right about that <laughs> absolutely any other questions All right, guys, that was awesome. You did, we did a great, uh, great job of that. I'm glad we even were able to uh, recap the last chapter. And thank you so much for joining. I'll see you guys next week on Zoom. Okay, thanks, Mike. You guys are awesome.